You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 22. It, this is not a Galileo thing, you know. There, no church condemned anyone for believing in Bayes' rule. You have to wait for academia to do that. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Another week, another Local Maximum. That's it. You're stuck in another local maximum with me for the next hour, so that's great. Hopefully we get into a better local maximum next week, but you never know. Um, But you will know that every week you'll get another local maximum. Do me a favor. Listen to the whole episode today. No, really, the whole thing. It's only an hour. That's all I ask, one hour, because we start off very cerebral today, a little egg-headed maybe, pensive, you might say, and then by the end, we're just completely off the wall. So it's great. I think that's the way uh, these shows are meant to be. All right, now a little bit about what you're going to hear today. Uh, We're going to start by following up on my monologue from last week about beliefs and probability. Uh, There's a whole host of areas to discuss there, but certainly the question of whether we're born with innate beliefs or not, and also my taxonomy on how people deal with various questions in their lives. That leads us into an article about Thomas Bayes himself. This is a recent article written by David Papineau, who is a professor of philosophy at King's College London and at City University of New York. He's coming at it in a lot of similar directions that that we are. Uh, I looked at some of his stuff. It looks great. Maybe this is not the only time you'll uh, hear about David Papineau in this program, Um, but this is my first hearing about them. And I read this article, I learned some of the things about Reverend Bayes and early Bayesian statistics that I actually didn't know, so we really enjoyed that, Aaron and I. And finally, are most of the scientific studies that you hear about wrong? Whoa, that would be crazy, like science and the truth being on opposite sides. Well, I hope not. Well, not science itself, of course, but I'm talking about, you know, quote, studies that you read about. So, yeah, maybe a lot of that is BS. So we discussed another article by Ivan Caron writing for the French Press Agency. Maybe this is a translated article. But, yeah, why are there so many stories floating around about what our diet should be and what lifestyle changes we should make? And then the next year, you know, the, the next year, you, you just hear something completely different. So like, it drives you crazy. And, you know, I, I really think we should talk about this because, you know, this is not theoretical. We're actually changing our day-to-day behavior because of the kinds of things we hear on the news. So let's at least begin to figure out how to make sense of it all. So the overall theme of the show today is applying what we learned last time, Bayesian probability to the rescue P-value hacking is where we get into trouble. Death to P-value hacking, I say. All right, let's bring on my usual co-host. Welcome to the show, Aaron. It's good to be here. All right, epistemology. That's the word of the day. So apparently now I I know that uh, that's what I was talking about uh, last week. It's called epistemology in philosophy. It's the study of or not the, I guess the study of, or the the thoughts about, is philosophy something that you study or something you think about? I don't even know. But anyway, that's the study of what's true or not, or how do we know what's true? So that's sort of what I started to get at. But as you can tell, as being a machine learning engineer, I kind of look more at the computational and storage questions around that, which does get into some deep questions. I I remember that term from from my college and, and maybe even high school days, but I would not have pulled that out of my word bag 
listening to last week's episode. So, did you take any philosophy courses in college? Nothing that was explicitly philosophy. Well, uh, I took a I took one class that was what was it? Science, technology, and society. Hmm. And so it was. It was that kind like of philosophy, class. but very much focused on what is. What 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 are the roles of science and and technology in 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 morality and their responsibility to to policy and that kind of stuff? You so could th- just listen there was to definitely- this, this uh, podcast for a lot of this stuff. Now you don't even need to take these classes. <laughs> I took, well, that, that gets very much to your question: is what is is philosophy something you study or something you think about? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I took one class that was explicitly philosophy. This is the best one because it was philosophy of computer science, um, ah. and is it was with um, Professor Galerner, uh, David Galerner, um, and he's actually I we should be talking about some of his articles. Really interesting guy, uh, but. Um, that was the great night. My, my last semester at Yale, it was just philosophy of computer science, working on sticky map, and then two pass fail courses. That was it. That was my whole thing. <laughs> that was a glorious three months. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's it. I feel like people think, you know, their vision of college is just sit around talking about philosophy all day. Like that's, that's what people think. It's like most of it is not that. Well, you, you chose the wrong major if that's what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Um, yeah, so last week I had a f- lot of fun doing that, um, especially being away. I was a little worried about getting some time out to do it, but it, it turned out very well. Uh, did you listen to episode 21? I did. Uh, and and I had I actually, I, I told you in the pre-show I had one particular thought about this. I actually had two. Um, the, go go the first over one, all your nitpicks, Aaron. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's so what, the first one isn't a nitpick, uh, okay. but uh, th- those those who who know us uh, may may know already that we we went to school together way way back in middle school. Right. Um, and and I, I don't think this was in middle school. I think it was in high school that I'm recalling. But we we were working on on I don't know what project this was even for, but but kind of a, a th- breaking things down into their building blocks, and it was. We may have not thought of it at the time as as philosophical, uh, p- probably because it was focused much more on the on the, kind of the physics end than the math end, okay. but kind of trying to break the universe down into its tiniest building blocks and, and hypothesizing, you know, is there a unit of time which you cannot divide into a smaller unit of time? Oh, you know, I remember and, that. Yeah. Yeah, and so so this 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 was very reminiscent in some ways to to that in in that you're just, you're, you're trying to get to the the most basic unit of, of how you think about things and then build back up from that. Um, So, so brought back some memories there. Um, But, but my nitpick was uh, you, you mentioned that there are, there are kind of three ways to, to approach uh, beliefs or, or to, to approach a, uh, a question when it, when it arises. The, uh, the first being to simply not have a belief on it and, and, and not care. The second to, uh, Pick, pick something as the correct answer and just proceed uh, with with the assumption that that you have you know absolute faith in that. And the third being to uh, develop a, a a Bayesian approach to it, where where you've uh, assigned probabilities to multiple possible outcomes. Right. Um, and and you made the stipulation that that the the first case, not having any beliefs, is is how we're born, which is in some ways true. But but we are born with certain uh, instincts and and 
kind of predispositions. Uh, so so that, that was that was my only real nitpick there, that we aren't born a complete uh, tabula rasa, a c- complete clean slate, uh, but but it's pretty close. Uh, and, I, and there is a whole no, nature would, versus nurture going on there. That's that's There's actually a lot of interesting research being done in that field. I would agree with you. Yeah, I would agree with you that it's, it's not a, a, a tabula rasa. Is that the term? I don't know. I, I, I want to say that's is it John Locke? This is okay. this is reaching way back into my philosophy. That's very rusty. We're not philosophers. What can we do? <laughs> All right, look. Uh, but just, it's our responsibility as educated individuals. Yeah, I just think right. No, I, I don't believe in the blank slate at all. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, people do have a lot of um, you know instinctual like beliefs, sh- shall we say? But I think the caveat there is, you know. Is it a belief or is it not a belief? So I kind of said, well, you have this sort of evolutionary, um, you know, building over time of the way the brain works. And so the question is, is that I don't know. Now I might be contradicting myself, but I don't know if that's a standard belief in the same way that like a document or, a you know, I make a conscious decision in my brain. I believe X, Y and Z. Um, It's related, but. I don't know if, like, if I design a chair, for example, let's let's say not like you know nature's design, but like human design. I mean, what goes into the chair is some belief in terms of how it will be used and like how, you know, how physics works, I guess. But like, d- is the chair actually a belief or is it a, a design? Like, it, what? I don't think those are the same thing. Maybe. Well. The the only way I can think of answering that is is to go to was it with Plato's uh, is it the analogy of the cave? Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> well, there's there's true things and then there's the shadow of things and we can only perceive the shadow of things. So you may be able to perceive a chair, but you cannot comprehend true chairness in its, oh its ideal form. I I, I ban the word chairness. <laughs> From the show, we're not allowed to use that on the show anymore. I, uh, I <laughs> no, I think um, I think my um, I think I have sort of an analogy to that, which is when I'm talking about most of the questions that we ask in day to day life are oversimplified, and I think that's fine, um, but they are oversimplified of you know some larger thing that might be going on, um, you know, you live with it. Um, the the other interesting thing when particularly if we're talking about kind of uh, instinctual things or, or, or gut reactions versus uh, logically uh, de- deliberated beliefs. Um, you, you, can, you can firmly believe something in, in that I, I have thought it through and arrived at this conclusion, but that could still be completely opposed to your gut reaction when, when put in certain situations. And what is... What is actually your belief in that case? Is it is it what you've rationalized, or is it what you instinctively do? And and can you overpower your instinctive reactions with your your logical rationalizations? Can can you kind of retrain yourself? And I don't I don't think there's a a hard answer one way or the other no, on not that. Not only that, kind of you see it all the time where people say they believe one thing, but then their actions. Yeah. Show well, they, there's, there's the whole unconscious biases, yeah. um, which, which uh, particularly in, in the kind of the context of discrimination have been discussed a lot in, in the last 
decade or so. Um, and, and, but, but it, it, it applies to any number of other areas of, of belief and thought that well, it's like, you, you, know, you may think you believe one thing, but your actions prove otherwise and you're not even aware of it. Maybe you're sitting at work and someone's like, I think the world's coming to an end soon. And you're like, then why are you here? You know, I, I don't think that's happened to me before, but so I don't want to talk about the actual like statements, but, but there are not, not that someone says the world is going to end, but, but there are, sometimes you shake your head and you're like, if you really believed that you would be um, probably doing something very different than talking to me. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you use the term, but, but you definitely talked about cognitive dissonance uh, in that episode. I don't, and- I didn't use the term, but yes. Yeah, and that's 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 everywhere, and and it gets a bad name, but uh, you, it's it's difficult to to have a uh, uh, to carry any meaningful beliefs and not have some cognitive dissonance floating around there somewhere. Right, particularly if your beliefs are, you know, a a, a complex system like what our brain is, or you know. Um, anything that's more complicated. Yeah. Than, well, and and it, it, yeah. it applies in, in things as fundamental as, as the physics of the universe too, that until that grand unified theory comes up, there's, there's cognitive dissonance between the ways we describe how nature operates. Yeah. Yeah. And that uh, ever elusive and, ultimate theory, so, uh, not, uh, not being discovered by our scientists uh, as nearly as fast as they would like. Uh, <laughs> but uh, even if we do, I think there's still going to be. It's a always lot of, ten years away, right? Yeah. No, but even you know, even if you do have that unified theory, you still have in the universe like information. Um, nobody has all the information that they need to make decisions, and so it's um, you know, it's you're always dealing in a world of uncertainty, and you're always trying to deal in a complex array of of information. And you're always trying to hold different ideas in your mind that might be contradictory. And sometimes you realize the two ideas are contradictory and you try to resolve it. And I think most of the time you don't realize it and you have to search those out to try to be more consistent. Because I just got back from Savannah, Georgia, right? And so one of the things you could do in Savannah is you could see the bench at where uh, Forrest Gump was telling all his stories. Um, actually, the bench is not there anymore. Someone stepped, kept stealing the bench. So they had to take the bench away <laughs> and put it in the museum. But uh, you could still see the intersection. And so I rewatched that movie. And I realized one of the interesting things about the movie that makes it entertaining is he doesn't, he describes the scenes that are going on, but oftentimes we as the audience know what's really going on. And hmm. he doesn't quite know. Um, and I feel like the reason that connects with people is that kind of describes a lot of situations in life where even if, even if you're not Forrest Gump, even if you're the smartest person in the world, you still don't exactly know everything that's going on. So a lot of things that happen to you in life are, you know, <laughs> as I've said, you know, the world is a, is a super intelligence of, of sorts that uh, you can't always make full sense of. Yeah, the, the audience has the benefit of, of hindsight being 2020 and all that. Yeah, or just... But, but nobody in the moment not. really has that... that sense of perspective right right um okay so cool i think that's enough on that Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we move on to a cool basing article that we found no i i think that makes uh sense to move on to that since uh that that was kind of where you landed with with last week's episode that right 
that this is an important piece of how we perceive the world around us. All right. So let me just read this article because this came out very recently, or June 28th. So that was just as I was like coming out with the last episode, just as I was writing. And this is, what is this, a Times Literary Supplement? Uh, what is this source? It's from the UK, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's somewhat like the, the New York Times uh, review of books or book review or, or whatever that gotcha. uh, segment is. I, I, I'm not familiar with it myself, but I'm that's, yeah. that's the before mental I, bin I've placed it in. Before I read the first few paragraphs, I want to point out I, I noticed, I read the article and I noticed uh, one, uh, they were talking about real coins and bias coins. And it says, you know, in reality, you won't meet a head biased coin in a month of Sundays. And I was like, a month of Sundays? That's another term that I've never heard before. <laughs> and I don't know, so that's, that means in a very long time, apparently. Um, and I don't know if that's a British thing only, but um, I had never heard that before. It, yeah, it's not something you hear too common in the US, so I wouldn't be surprised if it's a Britishism. All right. So let me just read the first two paragraphs and we can discuss. There's a lot of things, interesting stuff in this article. I actually recommend people to, uh, we'll put it in the show notes page and I would recommend it to be something that you could read all the way through. This is, uh, we are living in a new Bayesian age. Applications of Bayesian probability are taking over our lives. Doctors, lawyers, engineers, and financiers use computerized Bayesian networks to aid their decision-making. Psychologists and neuroscientists explore the Bayesian workings of our brains. Statisticians increasingly rely on Bayesian logic. Even our email spam filters work on Bayesian principles. It was not always thus. For most of the two and a half centuries since the Reverend Thomas Bayes first made his pioneering contributions to probability theory, his ideas were sidelined. The high priests of statistical thinking, I can't say the word statistical, I have problems with it. It's it's very problem being in the, in the field that I'm in. Okay, the high priests of statistical thinking condemned them as dangerously subjective, and Bayesian theorists were regarded as little better than cranks. It is only over the past couple of decades that the tide has turned. Uh, what tradition long dismissed as unhealthy speculation is now generally regarded as sound judgment. So this is actually a really interesting story that people don't talk about that as much. I feel like this is. This whole rise of Bayesian thinking, Bayesian statistics should be, it's maybe glossed over in school a little bit, but it, I think it's something that should be discussed um, more and more. Um, so we know not that much about Thomas Bayes' life. It says, uh, you know, he was into theology and mathematics and probability. It talks about how, you know, people didn't know probability that well. Um, Back in the day, and it actually makes an interesting, you know, an interesting case that um, if you were transport, if you had a very minor knowledge of probability back then, you could make a killing, which is really interesting. I always um, I play this game sometimes where I think like, what if I was magically transported to uh, an alternative time, like a few hundred years ago? What would I possibly do? Like, you know, my uh, machine learning skills are not very. <laughs> useful there. Maybe maybe you can make use of, I always think, well, okay, you can write, I can write, and now I know being able to do probability might be a, might be a good way to take advantage of some the, opportunities. The classic dilemma is you go back and your cell phone's not going to work, and yeah. your laptop, uh, even if it, you're 
you've got a full battery charge. Uh, that's not going to last you very long. And so, yeah. you know, at, at the end of the first week, you're completely lacking in, in street smarts and, yeah. and don't speak the language. And yeah. In, in one of my scenarios, I only go back like a hundred years. So I might be able to plug that thing in. Uh, <laughs> that would be, uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, if I could plug in my laptop, right? Um, but, no Wi-Fi, uh, though. No, no, no. But I, I could use all the files that I have downloaded. Um, yeah, but a few hundred years. I think what would happen was you'd just get sick and die because they're different diseases. But who knows? Um, <laughs> we could probably do a whole episode on 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 this kind of topic, which is but but you could walk into any any casino or or saloon and and really clean up at the at either the you know roulette or craps or the the card counting mm. table because. Yeah. Well, I think most of those games go back quite a ways. There, there were they really hadn't done the mathematical dissection. So, people who who were good at those were either good at reading other people or had developed a good gut sense for what those probabilities were. But there was no published literature on it. Yeah, although I'd have to imagine if they were playing those games over and over, their gut sense probably ended up being pretty good. But you could well, probably find th that's that's the evolutionary thing again. That if your yeah. gut sense for that wasn't very good, you couldn't afford to do it for very long. Right, right, right. Um, so that's an interesting idea. So let's go back to Bayes. This is something that I didn't know about. Um, so first of all, he provided a defense of Newton's calf, uh, calculus against uh, Bishop Berkeley's criticisms. And there were valid criticisms to calculus at the time that Newton came out with it. So, you know, this um, Bishop Berkeley, who was criticizing calculus, I think used this phrase, uh, ghosts of departed quantities, uh, which is the idea behind, an, you know, an infinitesimally small value, um, which is still, you know, it still is controversial as to what it is. I have a I have a book over here about uh, infinitesimals. I'll put in the show notes page uh, that that goes through some of the history of it. Um, but mathematicians later on sort of uh, quantified that a little bit more, or formalized that a little bit more with the theory of limits. But they didn't have it there then, so it um, you know I, I could see a valid criticism. But um, um, Bayes uh, defended. Calculus, because well, for one, it did work. Um, and uh, by the way, people are still critical of how we think about inf infinitesimals today. I don't want to. That could be a whole. Yeah, I, I, I was, well. I was I familiar with the conflict between Newton and, and Leibniz, but I, I was not that familiar with with criticisms at the time of of calculus as a whole. Right. Right. Yeah. And so uh, that's what he. Uh, published, you know, in his lifetime. But it turns out that Bayes' rule, that was published uh, posthumously. He wasn't even out there, you know, promoting it. The the thing that he's most famous for, you know, was published after he died by whoever inherited uh, his papers. Um, so that's well, very interesting. I, I don't think the article made it clear, but speculating on on very little information here, do you think that's because simply he he hadn't finished the work on it that he was planning to do or was he holding off on publishing it because he felt that it it was too controversial at the time or or uh, as as a man of of uh of religion that that it would it would pull away too much from his his other life's work to to get involved in that while he was still alive i don't know uh that is an uh, that is an interesting i did i i'm not sure what the answer is there um it could be that 
I don't know if there was any conflict with religion, but like you said, it could have just been like a time thing, or maybe he wasn't prepared for it, or maybe I don't know if he realized the significance of it. But yeah. you have to think if he was a reverend looking into this stuff, he was looking at, he was probably answering the same question that I was trying to answer when I discovered this branch of mathematics, which is what, how should we form our beliefs, you know? And so why I, I almost imagine that he probably was trying to answer the same question, but came at it mathematically, which by the way, may be, you know, may butt heads with the way some people think in you know, the, in, in religious communities in some, in some uh, cases. Hmm. Um, but I don't know. Um, you know, I don't think it, it, it no one, it, this is not a Galileo thing. You know, there, no church um, condemned anyone for believing in Bayes rule. You have to wait for academia to do that. <laughs> so <laughs> well, well, they, they did cite that, that he, he was perhaps motivated, uh, uh, to I, I guess David Hume had had printed some some arguments against uh, believing in miracles um, by essentially saying that it's it's probabilistically more likely that you're getting bad witness reports than that these are actual miracles and so his interest in probability was theoretically uh, m- motivated by finding a way to to, to counter that I, I don't know how true that is uh, but but it's been proposed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So now the focus of Bayes' paper is not on his theorem itself, because actually, as they point out, the theorem is very simple. Uh, you can come up at it with, you know, simple arithmetic on conditional probabilities. Um, but it's the idea of the logic of learning from evidence. So as we've talked about before, Bayes' rule means the is, I can just state it, you know, the probability of the hypothesis given the data is proportional to the probability of the data under the hypothesis times your prior probability on the hypothesis. So in other words, it's like I have certain priors as to which hypothesis, you know, which causes are causing, which underlying causes are causing the things that I am seeing. And then I have some priors as to which causes are more or less likely. Then I look at the data and then I update my opinion on what, what's causing what. Um, and so one of the problems is, well, you have to start with a prior on these causes, you know? So let's try to give an example. Like, is this, um, you know, am I, uh, I don't know, uh, did I get the disease? And we'll, we'll get to this in a little bit, but did I get this disease because I drank a lot of coffee or did I get this disease because I didn't get enough sleep or did I get this disease because of a combination of factors? I don't know. So um, you have to, or why am I tired today, right? You know, like all that, that's probably more of the things that I said. That's the idea. Like you can answer some of these questions um, based on this, but you have to have a prior in terms of you have to have like a prior opinion on what's more likely and what's least likely. And um, this was kind of condemned by academia because people said, well, that's not objective. You know, you're not objective if you start with a prior belief on the possible causes of something. And of course, I think there's a huge problem with that because first of all, you're already coming up with hypotheses. So, you know, you're already subjective based on which hypothesis you're testing. Um, but 
you know, also I think, you know, we're like you said, we're almost born with certain innate ideas. And so we kind of have to, we kind of have to live with this. If you don't have any um, sort of ideas or hunches on what's going on, then you have nothing to start with. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I read a paper in the last week that uh, paper is probably too generous a term for it, but that, that was criticizing the the use of, of Bayesian priors um, saying that, well, you're, you're basing your, your initial starting point on, on a guess or a gut instinct and you're improving it based on on the outcomes of your information, but because your your initial starting point was based on on this you know pulled out of nowhere prior, how can you how you 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 can only say that you've gotten closer to the truth, not that you've that you're you know that, that there's there's nothing in there to prevent you from uh, and isn't and that the they, point to get closer well, to the truth. But but they're they're saying that that if you if you start from something that's flawed, yes, you might be getting closer to the truth, but but you could be so far away that that you shouldn't have started from that. It, it wasn't a well argued position. Well, here's here's the problem. But, with that but they were because they I were think, trying to take analogy. pot shots at Bayesian based Wait. on the fact that that these priors are not fact. Let me make an analogy. Let's say you're trying to solve a geometry problem, and you start with the belief that like pi equals three. Then I'd be totally within my rights to be like, whatever equation you came up with, whatever number you came out could be totally off what the real answer is um, because you just, you just rounded off pi to a significant degree, and that's crazy. Um, Bayesian priors work a lot differently. Um, unless your prior is 100%, usually what happens is as you gather data, people with vastly different priors, and I've said this on the show before, will tend to come together and it doesn't take that much. I don't disagree with you, uh, but but there are definitely niches. Maybe isn't even uh, a, a small enough word for it. But there are parts of the the scientific community that that are not comfortable with with the use of priors at all. Yeah. Well, I'm going to. I would love to debate someone. If someone out there wants me to debate on the use of priors or the use of uh, Bayesian thinking versus a frequentist, that would be a. a yeah, well, and, and I think the strongest argument for priors is that even if you don't think you're using priors, you are, you're just not couching it in those terms. Right, right. So now another question that people ask or economists ask a lot is compared to what? So if I'm not using Bayesian inference, if I'm using something else, uh, what is the alternative? And the alternative in most cases is something called significance testing or p-values. Have you heard of this uh, p-values? I, I have, and and I'm not a statistician or a scientist, yeah. so I yeah. haven't done that much work with them, but uh, I, I went to school with a lot of uh, people who, who went into the sciences, and there's... I've, I've heard people say, kind of joking, but then again, kind of not, that uh, modern modern scientific research, frequently you... you don't go in with a high, so standard scientific method is that you develop a hypothesis and then you design uh, an experiment to prove or disprove that, well, to disprove that hypothesis. And then it either does or does not disprove your hypothesis. But uh, much of, of modern uh, scientific research in pursuit of publication is done with, let's run an experiment and then we're going to comb through the data and do a bunch of different tests on the data and see what comes back with a p-value of of better than than uh, what is it 0.05 and then right. that's something we can publish. So let me let me define what a p-value is because it's 
very misunderstood. And even when you define it, it kind of makes you do a double take. Like, what what did he just say? <laughs> you know, because it is, it's saying, you know, what is the probability that, let's say you did an experiment. Suppose that the, and usually when you do an experiment, you have an experimental group and you have a control group, right? Your control group doesn't receive the treatment. Let's say you're testing a new drug, right? Yep. The control group doesn't receive the, or tr- doesn't receive the treatment and the, um, the exposed group does, right? And you do it on both groups and then you get a difference. You, you look at the people who got the treatment and you know, it's like, oh, they're cured more often than the um, control group is. Now, um, if you have enough people in both groups, then you're very rarely going to get um, both groups having the same number of people who are cured, right? So one group is going to be greater than another. And so if you just run this experiment a bunch of times, half the time, uh, the the uh, exposed group is going to have more people cured than the control group. So half the time, if you don't do any statistics at all, basically, or if you just do division, you're like, yay, the drug worked. No, well, but, half, half the so, time, if you divide them in two groups and do the same thing to two groups, right. one group will be more. And <laughs> it's yeah. it, it's well, not telling you anything about the more. treatment. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. But half the time you get the, the thing. So what the p-value asks is, What's the probability that you get that supposing that they were equal, that they were supposed to, that they were both control groups, what is the probability that you will have a result at least this extreme? So, for example, let's suppose you have 10 people cured in control and 50 people cured in, in exposed. Then it's like, okay, given that those are both, uh, that, you know, given that, people are cured at a 10 over N rate. Let's say N is the number of people in both groups. Um, what's the probability that you'll get at least 50 uh, cured in the other group? And that could be a very you know, small probability. Um, and again, if you just did a double take being like, what is he, t- wait, wait, what? What is he talking about? Like, you're not alone, you know, because um, it's actually a very difficult thing to uh, interpret. But there is something called p-value hacking. Have you heard of this? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's when, right. And so usually something is considered significant if it's the p-value is greater than 90% or 95% or, you know, or if you flip it around, it's more that significant. So it's like 0.1 or 10% or 5% or something like that, right? So that just means that this, you won't get a result this extreme. You'll only get it 5% of the time. Well, if I run the experiment 20 different ways, chances are one's going to get a hit, right? Yep. Even just under random circumstances. And so, how do we know that this was one of the 19 or was this the 20th? Right. I mean, like, so if I run an experiment 20 different times, just, and it's just a random experiment, there is no, uh, like you're, you're both getting, the, you're all getting the placebos. Um, eventually one's going to hit with a significant result. So it's, and, and that's called p-value hacking, where people don't literally do that, but they end up doing it in a lot of ways because nowadays we have so much data that's coming in, so many experiments being performed that just by dumb luck, some experiments are going to show uh, results where people you know like those results and they say, oh, this shows that, that this drug worked or whatever. And I run into this problem with attribution all the time, which is, you know, whether this ad is working or not. And it drives me crazy to no end because at the end of the process, I come out with a probability distribution over what we think the lift of the ad is. 
and maybe a confidence bound around that. Nobody wants that. They all just want the significance and p-value of the fact that the ad causes lift. And I, it makes me so mad every time someone asks for that. But that's what, uh, that's what the industry wants right now. And it's so it's this horrible, horrible, evil system. I don't call it evil, just wrong system. <laughs> I, I'm getting a little bit dramatic now. Is like ingrained in an industry where their bottom line should depend on whether they're getting this right or not. And, uh, and they're, they're screwing it up because this is what, has been taught in academia for many, many years. Yeah, well, I, I think at the root of the problem, there, there's a couple of things. One is is that the people in in the you know the marketing or the business side, uh, they probably don't have that strong a foundation in statistics, and so they've been taught yeah. somewhere along the way that that these are the the values that you you grade performance on. Um, but but I think even even among those that do have a good understanding of statistics or those who have a good understanding of, of experimental design, uh, they don't necessarily overlap in the right way. That usually, uh, if you're a scientist, you've got a good understanding of experimental design and you've learned just enough statistics so that you can get your p-values to prove that your experiment is worthy. And if you're- And by the way, if you're a scientist, you don't have that much of a, you know, it's very disappointing if, you're, if your thing doesn't work. So, you're, I mean, I think that most real scientists are always trying to, I'm real scientists, I don't know, <laughs> I, I'm going to get so criticized, but I'm just saying scientists should be trying to, you know, um, think of all the ways their experiment could have gone wrong. But I think a lot of times when people are doing research, they really, really want to get a hit. And so well, there's, there's yeah. two things going on there. One is, is what I mentioned before that, that, the classic scientific method is you come up with a hypothesis and then your experiment is designed to disprove that. And it right. either does or it doesn't. And if it doesn't disprove it, that doesn't prove it. It just means you haven't disproved it. Uh, and and most – many things are not thought of that way because, no, I mean, there aren't people running – you know, designing and running experiments to outside of a very small group that that's being labeled as a fringe to, for example, disprove global warming. There are scientific uh, research projects that are trying to confirm global warming, uh, and and it, you could say it's just semantics in how you structure whether you're coming at the hypothesis from one end or another. But that's I, another I think another one of those questions that's ill-defined. Yeah, too. I mean that's a very difficult one. But but I think the the other piece of that is there is so much pressure. To, to publish and to show scientific results and disproving something unless unless you're literally overturning you know a a staple of the scientific you know something that's that's been believed for years and all of a sudden you've you know disproven the theory of relativity or something then disproving is a big deal and you can build a career on that but if you disprove uh, something not not such a big deal that's not necessarily publishable and uh, Along those same lines, nobody's in – well, not nobody, but but very few people are investing the time in replicating scientific studies. Uh, and, and in the cases where they are, it's not always – well, replicating someone's study and confirming it is not glamorous science. It's, yeah. it's saying that I did exactly what they did and I got the same results so I can follow directions. Yeah. Um, but – there, a lot of this, this you know, p-hacked uh, science is not easily replicated, and and is that the the why of that is, has potentially very uh, very concerning answers. 
Yeah. And and by the way, I just want to go back to something that you said, how, well, you didn't um, disprove the hypothesis. The hypothesis still stands. You didn't prove or disprove it. And so that's not very interesting. But do you see how, um, you know, do you see how Bayesian thinking kind of um, is a lot more elegant in this sense, where you have some prior belief over how likely you think this hypothesis is, and then well, you right, incorporate so, so, your so experimental that's... results afterwards, and then you have a, a, another belief, and you, you maybe nudged it in one direction or the other, but you can almost measure how much you nudged it. Right, so that's, versus... that's the inverse probability. So you can, you can take right. these results and say, okay, given that we've gotten this result, what does that tell us about our certainty in, in, in where we were coming from? Um, so yeah. I, I think in, in that article, the example they give with the, uh, the uh, unfair coin that that they they lay out one scenario where you, there's basically a 50/50 chance that that it's an unfair coin given given the right. priors they've laid out. And that's my, uh, that, but if, that's my but if it happens, if you someone's know, someone's listening to this and, and applying to Foursquare, <laughs> you should know that's my uh, that's my interview question. So, uh, yeah. But if you are applying for Foursquare and you listen to this and you did your research on that question because you listened to this, then you're a pretty good interviewee. So, I'll. Uh, there you go. All right. Uh, yes. No, that is my interview question. You're right. You're right. If you know the prior, sometimes you do know the priors is what you're saying. Yeah. And that's exactly what we look for, you know, in real world systems at Foursquare. So for example, a prior on what, uh, what rating a venue should have, you know, should people like this place or dislike a place uh, and, and what probability well, we have all sorts of examples. We come up with priors on that. Another big example that I had is, you know, one of the things that we want to estimate, you know, at Foursquare is how busy different, uh, when we particularly like, you know, a few years ago when we were working on the recommending the recommender system. So we were looking on at uh, how popular different places would be at different times of day, right? And so you look at when people were at different restaurants and bars at different times of day, and some of them have lots of data associated with it. But the ones that don't have a lot of data associated with it, I noticed that it was like, well, those are equally popular popular at 4 a.m. at 4 p.m. You know, that's probably not right. Yeah, that seems um, unlikely. Yeah. So we incorporated priors into that, and we ended up with, with a much more rational result. So sometimes you actually do have priors uh, that you can you can pull from. Now, does does Foursquare's uh, recommender uh, algorithm and and if this isn't something you can share, go ahead and say so. But does it does it take that that me- that uh, measure or prediction of, of busyness of how crowded a place is and determine that you should I should direct people to the places that are busy and hopping or I should avoid the places that are going to be overcrowded? Yeah, I mean, most of the time it's used for um, just figuring out when a place is open. Um, that makes so sense. Automatically. So that's pretty interesting what, what hours are. This has been something that's been asked probably – Probably someone asked Dennis this at South by Southwest in 2009 is, is like, how can I figure out which places are too busy so I avoid it? Um, and people have tried to build, you know, hack projects on that a lot, but it never seems to be as popular as you think it's going to be. Yeah, well, it seems less critical in that case than it is in traffic routing, um, which right. I'm, I'm sure that ways and google maps and is, is apple maps even still a thing uh that, yeah. that, that they're they're working it on is. ways to optimize for that yeah yeah all right so we talked a little bit about um how uh p hacking and 
as an, an inevitable result of statistical orthodoxy has been to fill the science journals with bogus results. And according to this article, again, um, and, and there was another article that we found about most scientific studies being wrong. I just want to jump ahead to the end of this article where it says, an informed guess is better than sticking your head in the sand. And in any case, initial misjudgments will tend to be rectified as the data comes in. So that's essentially what I've been saying. All right. So let's finish up um, by talking about uh, this very recent article as well. and talks about beware of those scientists. And this, again, this just came out since July 5th, but all this stuff has been talked about many, many times over. But it's cool to see people are still writing about it now. It's very relevant. It's beware of those scientific studies. Most are wrong. Researchers warn. I always find these funny, these um, headlines where it's like scientific study says that scientific study is wrong. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, well, it, it's, it's one of those contradictions in terms, it's, right? It's turtles I mean, all the way down. Right, right, right. So it's like, but then that scientific study could be wrong, uh, in which case most scientific studies are right. But then if most scientific studies are right, then that scientific study that said that they were wrong will also be right. I, and so I always take great pause when reading a study or, or yes, a scientific study that is that did no research of their own or, or ran no experiments of their own that is simply aggregating other studies. Um, yeah. Be, because... I am unlikely to do the homework to go uh, evaluate the validity of all of the component studies. They they should have done that, but I don't trust them. Yeah, well, I also want to refer people to um, one of the episodes that we've done, not too recently, but the one on, on data stories. Which one was that? That was, um, uh, let me pull it up. Poke, Chipotle, and Green Needle. That was episode 15 with Sarah Spagnolo, right? And I talked about how we took all of these data studies and turned them into news articles. Well, a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of groups are taking data and turn them into news articles. That's a big thing that people do. And so you realize that not all of these are going to be uh, the most accurate. I mean, I always try to give the most accurate things to, um, you know, to the marketing team, but you know, you never know, you never know how it's going to work out. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that get by where it's like, this is a cool story and no one's going to check our homework. <laughs> so we should just put it out there. Right. Because it's going to get us views. Well, to, That's the point. To harken to back to, to some stuff you talked about last week. No, not all facts are necessarily created equal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let me start with this article. Uh, uh, just read the beginning. A few years ago, two researchers took the 50 most used ingredients in a cookbook to study how many had been linked with a cancer risk or benefit based on a variety of studies published in scientific journals. The result, 40 out of 50, including salt, flour, parsley, and sugar, uh, are all had links to cancer. Is everything we eat associated with cancer? The researchers wondered in a 2013 article based on their findings. Uh, their investigation touched on a known but persistent problem in the research world. Too few studies have large enough samples to support generalized conclusions. Um, and so we could talk about the, the sample size a little bit. I mean, the sample size essentially is, if you have a smaller sample size, a lot easier to do p-hacking is how those things are connected, right? I mean, if you have a really, really large sample size, then oftentimes these correlations uh, will come in quite clearly. Although, again, they're still just correlations. It's hard to put all the other, you know, if somebody eats X, 
and those people tend to get cancer at a higher rate, uh, it could be that the people who eat X also tend to do something else, which, um, which is the true cause. Yeah, they, they, right? they, they, they And you might that- think that that's a... Yeah, I feel like people, a lot of people, when they hear that causation is not correlation thing, you're like, oh, yeah, that could be true. But it's that's a no, it's actually that's almost all the things you look at are correlations and not causations um, as it happens. Even things where, where you think they're, they're causations, you look into them a little further and uh, it turns out that the story isn't as clear as you thought they were. Yeah, they they, they indicated that they're kind of two major weaknesses beyond the the whole p hacking thing in in scientific studies one one is uh if the participants are not randomly selected um then yeah. then then you're introducing some inherent bias there uh and and the other is if the sample size is too small then you you it becomes very hard to have meaningful results um yeah. and these are both things that i struggle with on attribution where people want to draw conclusions from data sizes that are too small. They want to draw too many conclusions for results that aren't significant or just barely beat the border. And I'm very worried about that. Um, but happens all the time because people want their results. Um, and then and people want their news stories, right? So there's one issue here about the Mediterranean diet. A famous 2013 study on the benefits of the Mediterranean diet against heart disease had to be retracted in June by the most prestigious of medical journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, because not all participants were randomly recruited. The results have been revised downward. I didn't know that. Is the Mediterranean diet still healthy or is it just the, it's, it's the link to heart disease? I, I think it's likely still healthy. And and there may be uh, benefits in terms of heart disease, but I think they aren't nearly as dramatic as they originally stated. So this whole article, this whole section of the article says coffee and red wine. I'm always people say those things are good. Are they still good? Well, so so the one that came out uh, this week um, uh, was about coffee, and not only did it say coffee yeah. is good for you, and and I will caveat. So this is a study out of the UK and and they they pass at least one of those hurdles in that uh, they apparently had uh, over 500,000 participants. Um, right. Now, when they break that in up in, into age groups and different cohorts, I don't know how many they have in, in each group But there's anymore. so many differences in, yeah. in demographics and all sorts of things from between coffee drinkers and non-coffee so the, drinkers. The interesting thing there is not only did they say that coffee is good for you and it reduced uh, what they refer to as, as all-cause mortality, um, but that those who drank eight cups of coffee per day had fewer deaths than those that drank two. Hmm. And I'm, I'm sure they tried to control for as many variables as they possibly I, I would imagine so, yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, I, I have not read the, the through link to the, uh, the, what is it, the, but is it, is the it because... JAMA Internal Medicine article that was published on yeah. July 2nd. But... I, I mean, there could be causes of it other than the actual ingredients of the coffee. It could because be because you sit down and relax at the beginning of the yeah, day. Well, and, and I, I, yeah, there, there could be other things to which this is correlated. Um, I, I did hear mention when, when I heard this story being reported on the news that it was not due to the caffeine they stipulated that, that it, it. So decaf worked just yeah, as well? Yeah, decaf was, uh, I, I don't know if it was just as effective, but it was still effective. Um, so, so presumably there's some other, effect in in play there and and yeah it could be something um kind of in environmental is not the right word but but the 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 act of of 
taking the time and, and the ritual uh, as opposed to the actual contents of your cup. Um, I don't know yeah. if they compared how uh, heavy heavy tea drinkers fared compared to coffee drinkers. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> it is, uh, you know, it's. I bet everybody, like 90% of the people who are listening to this right, uh, are now are writing down, okay, coffee is good for you. I'm going to talk about that. We just said all this stuff is bogus, but everybody, <laughs> even I'm doing yeah. it, you know, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, and, okay. And, and it wasn't that long that I believe California uh, declared coffee a carcinogen, um, but, but everything causes cancer in California. Yeah. What, what about, so those smoking studies uh, about smoking being linked to cancer, um, I've heard that those are pretty airtight, but now I'm not so sure. Should we revisit those? What, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, I'm, I hesitate to, uh, to cast doubt there uh, just yeah, because of too. the social cost of, of taking such a stance. <laughs> it has nothing to do with what I believe. It's just the social cost of taking the side. I don't like smoking. I, I, you know, I've, um, I'm not, uh, I don't like cigarettes. I don't like being bit around cigarettes, but if I were to actually approach this like logically and try to come up with the truth, I don't know what the answer is. I haven't actually looked at these studies myself. All I know is that there are very high social costs, as you said, to say that smoking doesn't cause cancer. Yeah. I, I think, I think there are a couple of big problems there. One, one being that, uh, uh, a large portion of the literature is uh, coming from not impartial sources uh, on both sides, um, yeah. and so you've got to either uh, either pull out what's valid from those studies or completely discount those. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a strong I gut feeling it that yeah. that it is indeed. Uh, a danger to your health, and I, I'm not yeah. willing to invest the time and effort to uh, to assign to further probabilities to this. This this is uh, a category two uh, dilemma, uh, as, yeah. as you laid it out last category week. Category two, you mean we're talking about in mind where you pick an answer and you move yes, on, I've, and you don't. I've decided that I am completely satisfied with the answer that smoking is bad for you, and I will live my life accordingly. Yeah, because even if even if someone yeah. said it's neutral, I wouldn't start it. So I don't really have now a, a more reason to a more interesting question and one that you might yeah. be able to get funding to to research uh, would yeah. be uh, smoking of marijuana and related products. Uh, are mm. the effect? How do those effects compare to smoking of of you know your traditional nicotine cigarettes? Uh, and and is it bad for you? And is are the uh, are whatever potential side effects or, or negative effects are associated with that tied to the fact that it's being smoked or is it due to what you're smoking and how do you separate that out? You know, you know, here's what's crazy. The whole e-cigarette and vaping thing too. And, and what are the actual yeah. risks there that, that are somewhat unexplored, but, but right now those don't have uh, the social stigma uh, that traditional smoking has, has attached to it. And so they're not being, uh, Delved into as, as significant. Yeah. A couple of things. One, it's amazing how much social stigma goes into which studies you do. And secondly, you know, it's, I, I remember uh, someone, uh, this, this maybe during a presidential election 10 years ago, I might've been, I, I don't want to, I, I might've been a question asked to Giuliani, although I, I don't want to, I want to be careful about trying to remember things from 10 years ago, <laughs> but somebody asked the presidential candidate, like, you know, would you consider legalizing marijuana? And they said, well, 
uh, the this federal department or the FDA said X, Y, and Z, and that's the those are the experts, and that's the definitive science, and therefore it means it has to remain uh, illegal. And it's like now all of this, all of these studies are being reopened again. It turns out the government was wrong about that whole food pyramid thing all along. And it's <laughs> yeah, now like, it's a staircase. Or, or yeah, no, yeah. it was a staircase for a while, and then they changed it into a plate with, with like, quadrants. Right, right. All right. I don't know what the point I'm trying to make. It's just like, you know, the people we, – we do put things in category two that then yeah, have to so, be reevaluated. So I, I think the logical fallacy would be appeal to authority, which is tempting to use a shorthand because in – some cases you have to it's sometimes. valid. Um, yeah. But but yeah. You can't check into everything yourself. And 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 this is this is one of the issues with, with the whole um and, and I, I don't want to hammer on on climate change and global warming because it's not really something I want to get into deeply. But anytime someone says about anything, well the science is settled, that's an appeal to authority and sometimes uh, appealing to scientific authority is is a valid shorthand and and sometimes uh it's not as clear cut as that and yeah. and if it's preventing uh you know additional science from being done on a topic that could be productive then then that's a problem yeah great so i want to end that that discussion with that that's a good way to end it um i think we don't have time to talk about this next story i think we can we do another show on this because it's really interesting about how twitter is now suspending a lot of accounts that they say are fake i'm sure most of them are but uh it's something that i've been talking about a lot and so just i'll just read the headline from the washington post uh, twitter suspended more than 70 million accounts in may and june the pace has continued in july and this is going to open up a lot of questions about what is a fake account um, what is the effect of what they're doing and what are their real motivations behind it? Is it for you and me to make our experience on Twitter more enjoyable or more informative or are there deeper motivations? Because if they wanted to do that, they could have done that a long time ago. So I think we should discuss this um, in a future episode. Yeah, I, I, I think we're not going to have any problem coming back to that because uh, Twitter and Facebook and the other social media companies are going to continue to uh, uh, kind of cover their self, cover themselves in shame on this topic as, as we move forward. So it'll be recurring. <laughs> there, there is one that I want to throw out a mention of uh, because it is, it is uh, uh, relevant to the, the current news cycle. Um, apparently there was a, uh, a newspaper that was, I believe they were posting to Facebook um, the, the text of the declaration of independence and they were posting it, you know, like a paragraph at a time for uh, a, a week leading up to, uh, to, to the actual uh, Independence Day on July 4th. Uh, and uh, a few days into it, uh, Facebook flagged one of their posts as politically inflammatory and blocked it, um, which <laughs> I, I thought was was interesting. Yeah, they, they say some pretty some pretty mean things about the king, but uh, not unjustified. And uh, the, the fact that Facebook's filters uh, pulled that down without realizing what it was is, is a little embarrassing. But uh, yeah. li- like I said, there'll be plenty more on this topic it's it's not going away so we can hit that up uh, the the next time we have a chance to yep. to dig we'll in here this year next year <laughs> year after that i think everything that they're doing now is uh is i don't know maybe they'll succeed but i think they're gonna end up stepping in it more and more <laughs> when they're trying to fix it but we'll see and, and when um, they do we'll be there to comment on on the way they're pivoting to try and fix it Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I think that's it for today. Do you have anything else to add? No, I'm good. 
All right. Thanks a lot. This was actually a really interesting discussion today on the local maximum. And uh, I hope to cover some follow-up on Twitter and all that stuff next week. We also have some really interesting guests lined up. So have a great week, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. Recording is now in progress. Let's do a mic check. Okay. Uh, I, I've got a uh, post-4th of July patriotic quote here. Maybe, patriotic's maybe the wrong word, but uh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> if you love wealth better than liberty, the tranquility of servitude better than the animating contest of freedom, go home from us in peace. We ask not your counsel or arms. Crouch down and lick the hands which feed you. May your chains set lightly upon you, and may your posterity forget that ye were our countrymen. Wait, so that is is that like pro liberty or anti liberty? I can't even tell. That that is that is Sam Adams basically saying that if you're more interested in, in making money and taking the king's shilling, get get in my house. Okay. Sounds good. I'm watching uh, that show John Adams on HBO. I'm rewatching it. It's like ten years old. Very good. Sam I, I remember it being quite good, but I only made it through like the first half. I should I yeah. should go back. Well, now, Sam where, Adams is only in the first uh, episode. Yeah, but he's. Are, like, are you are you watching this through a a streaming uh, service? Yeah, Amazon Prime. Okay, I, I wasn't HBO. I wasn't going to give free advertising unless you were okay with that. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean it's HBO too. <laughs> so if you have HBO Go or HBO yeah. Now or whatever, you can do it. But I think like um, uh, there's like a, a British guy being tarred and feathered in the first episode, and. Sam Adams is like, yeah, right on. And like John Adams is like, <laughs> you can't do this. This is uh, you know, barbarism, something like that.